to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. To ensure compliance ACPE standards, the speakers have the following disclosures. One of our speakers, Chris Hernan Spouse, is a stockholder in a privately owned CBD company. With that said, our topic for today's podcast is cannabis for pain management. Cannabis is being investigated as an alternate to opioid therapy due to the potential to decrease opioid requirements and a better safety profile compared to opioids. Now, my name is Jenny Kale, and I will be chatting with Maria Foy and Chris Herndon about both the benefits and the uses of cannabis for pain management. Maria is an advanced clinical pharmacist specialist and palliative care pharmacist at Jefferson Abington Health in Abington, Pennsylvania. Maria is part of the faculty for medical cannabis certification education for the state of Pennsylvania. And Chris is a professor at SIUE School of Pharmacy in Edwardsville, Illinois, where he specializes in pain management, palliative care, and substance use disorders. Thank you for joining us today. Marie and Chris, let's start off by talking about how the endocannabinoid system is involved in pain pathophysiology. This is definitely something that I don't know and maybe others are not familiar with. All right, so I'm going to give this a shot. I think I'm going to just try to basically explain pain pathophysiology so you can get an understanding of how the endocannabinoid system interacts with our pain system. So, for example, in general, say you touch a hot stove. You release that, and at that point of contact, you release a soup of neurotransmitters, most of them excitatory, that set off a stimulus and set the pain signal neurons to send that signal to the brain. First off, the signal goes to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, where some modulation of the signal takes place. But the secondary afferent signal, as facilitated by the NMDA receptor, sends that signal up to the brain our brain perceives pain. And there's so many things that are involved in perception of pain, past experiences and things like that. And then there's also modulation of pain in the brain, which part of the endocannabinoid system is part of that modulation. Now, the endocannabinoid system will regulate various functions all throughout the body. This also regulates our mood, our pain perception. And this works through activation of the CB1 and the CB2 cannabinoid receptors. In our body, we produce natural endocannabinoids, two of which being anandamide, another name for that is AEA, and this is the principal ligand for the CD1 receptor. Two arachidinoyl glycerol, or 2AG, is our other endocannabinoid naturally in our body, and that is the principal ligand for the CD2 receptor. Now, it's interesting, the endocannabinoid system works in a retrograde fashion. In general, it's dormant. But at the postsynaptic receptor, if we notice that there's a deficiency in our natural endocannabinoids, a signal is sent to the presynaptic receptor where it actually will activate the cannabinoid receptors and decrease the release of those excitatory neurotransmitters that are facilitating the pain pathway. So it's interesting, our body knows when to shut off the system. As soon as we get to homeostasis, 
our body will shut off the release of our natural endocannabinoids. But we run into a little bit of trouble when we're using phytocannabinoids. We often think more is better, but in, in the endocannabinoid system and using phytocannabinoids, which is we'll talk about later, but using cannabis basically, when you use too much of it, it overwhelms the system and actually can cause the problems that we're trying to fix. So too much cannabis, an example, at, low, at high doses will cause anxiety because we're overwhelming our system versus not enough or just enough when we're microdosing can actually treat that system. Now, a little bit about our receptors. The CB1 receptors are located mostly in the brain. And these modulate the excitatory neurotransmitter release, as I was just talking about, and also play a role in the emotional responses. These CB1 receptors, though, are also responsible for the intoxicating effect of cannabis when they're activated. The CB2 receptors, they're located in various immune cells that are involved in pain modulation. CB2 receptors are also found in brain microglia. And these receptors are upregulated when there's inflammatory or peripheral nerve damage. And when they are activated, they do inhibit the release of inflammatory and nociceptive excitatory neurotransmitters. Interesting, beta endorphin release is also stimulated by the CB2 receptor activation. Beta endorphins are natural opioids. So this may provide synergy with opioid therapy and maybe we can use less opioids in our patients that use cannabis. And we'll be talking about this a little bit later in the podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Maria, for that information. It's very interesting. Now, I know there are many cannabis products out there in the world today. And so would you be able to teach us about what cannabis constituents are involved in pain relief and how this might help you select between different products? Great question, Jenny. And I think I'll try to take a stab at this if it's okay. You know, the thing that I find very interesting about the medical use of cannabis is the how little we know about it and, and the continued discovery of new phytocannabinoids. And so Maria talked about our endocannabinoid system and the neurotransmitters that are involved with the cannabinoid system that we make naturally. But then we can also find several modulators of this system that are present in the different strains of cannabis plants. And the probably the two that most of us are most familiar with are delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, and cannabidiol, or CBD. Now, there are quite a few others that are still, I guess, in the, what I guess I would consider to say the potential proposed medical utility. These include THCV, CBN, or cannabinol, cannabigerol, which is CBG, and then a newer discovered one CBC or cannabichromy. But with us focusing on THC and CBD, what we've seen is, is that there's been a ton of different research involved in how either one or both of these particular phytocannabinoids impact the pain physiology or the pain perception that we experience. And what we have found is, is that both THC and CBD, either alone or in combination, can have an impact on the level of nociception or the severity of pain that we experience in various models, in various types of pain syndromes, and obviously with variable individual like pharmacogenomic makeups and, and other patient-specific variables. 
The thing that I want to make sure that I discuss with the audience today is, is that, like Maria said, more is not always better. And we've actually been able to show this in one really elegantly designed study that was done out of UCLA, where they looked at a in-human models, a pain model where they administered sub-intradermal capsaicin and then had the participants use either low, moderate, or high concentration THC alone. And the concentrations that correlate with that are 3, 6, and 9%. And what they found was the moderate or 6% THC levels actually wound up being the most beneficial for patients in terms of their pain experience. And the low and the high actually were not as effective. The other thing that is important to note is, is that, you know, when you use medical cannabis, where you're using the flower or another product that is what we call broad spectrum, where it has all the stuff in it from the plant, we like to call that the entourage effect. And basically what that means is, is that all of these individual cannabinoids, which do interact at the cannabinoid receptors, like Maria mentioned, have varying effects depending on what other cannabinoids are present. And so if CBD is involved along with THC in variable concentrations. Each of those different cannabinoids can take on a different role at that receptor, where THC may typically be a partial agonist at the CB1 receptor. When CBD is present at lower concentrations, it can actually take on a different physiochemical role. And then last but not least is probably what is one of the most interesting things to me from an efficacy standpoint is the involvement in terpenes. Terpenes are actually in a lot of different plants, can give individual plants their different characteristics. And we're starting to learn that these individual terpenes can also have potential medical value. Now, we don't have good RCT data to back a lot of this up. But it's been proposed that some of the different terpenes that we widely believe to be involved with the efficacy of cannabis include limonene, something called beta-myrcene, which has some anti-inflammatory effect, pinene, which can give like pine trees, their pine, that kind of pine saw smell, and then carophylline. All of these can have what we consider to be anti-inflammatory properties that can aid in the benefit of for the potential benefit of these substances. Now, the thing I wanna make sure and that I end with is, is that we have pharmaceutical grade cannabinoids that have been available for quite some time. One is gernabinol. The other one, which is no longer on the market is nabilone. And then there's one product that's not available in the US that is a 50-50 mix between just THC and just CBD called nabiximols. And all three of those, unfortunately, have been kind of disappointing in the large clinical trials that have been done looking at various pain syndromes. So I think that really gives some good supporting structure to this idea of the entourage effect of these different cannabinoids and terpenes that can be involved. Thank you, Chris. Just to kind of elaborate on that a bit, and you said there was some kind of disappointing experience with some of these agents. What would you say, does cannabis work for all types of pain or what sort of pain do you think they are best used for? So when you survey people that use cannabis, 
the majority of people that use cannabis are for pain management. But really the most evidence out there is for more chronic type of pain or neuropathic type of pain syndromes. A survey that was conducted in 2017 by Piper in the Journal of Pharmacology, they reported that about three quarters of the patients that use cannabis were able to decrease their opioid requirements, were able to decrease their anti-anxiety medications, and about 50% of them were actually able to decrease their antidepressants that they were using for anxiety. So like I said, most of the evidence for efficacy is seen in that chronic and neuropathic pain research. We saw cannabis give pain control similar to our pharmacologic coanalgesic agents. So in other words, when we're using medications, our traditional medications for pain, chronic pain, we're tending to stay away from opioid therapy. We're finding that opioid therapy is not very robust and efficacious for long-term use, especially in people that have comorbid psychological comorbidities. And they find that they're sensitizing their pain system and causing overfiring of that NMDA receptor in that pain pathway. Cannabis has been shown to actually wind down the pain system. So for neuropathic pain, sensitized pain, we're finding that cannabis can be effective. And interestingly enough, cannabis is in some guidelines in Australian guidelines, European guidelines for neuropathic pain as a third line agent. And for myself, it's interesting because a lot of the research that has been done with for pain is done with THC alone. But when I'm doing a consult and when I'm recommending for pain management, I'm looking at THC and CBD in combination. So I think for in general, some of the studies may not be as robust if they're just like Chris has said, we're looking at an entourage effect, not just looking at THC alone or CBD alone. And so for chronic neuropathic pain, I think that there can be a role for cannabis. So what about acute pain? I break my arm. Am I gonna, is cannabis gonna help me? Evidence, not so robust. Most of the studies are mixed. And interestingly, they did a meta-analysis on acute pain management with cannabis, and it included six trials that had oral administration, but one of these trials over in Europe actually had IM administration of cannabis. And the oral administration really did not show any differences in this meta-analysis compared to placebo. However, there was an effect with IM cannabis compared to placebo that there was some type of treatment effect. So it's interesting, why in this trial did we not see for acute pain that the IM worked, so the oral did not work? Some thoughts are maybe it could be because of the uh, variability in oral administration, it could be because everybody metabolizes cannabis different and there is metabolism into an active ingredient. So are some people not metabolizing in the trial? And then another piece of it, most of my patients, when I use IV dilated, it works so much better than oral dilated because it works quicker. And I think that in some of the trials with cannabis oral not working for an hour to two hour, depending on when they were looking for that efficacy outcome, it may not have been enough time for some patients to actually achieve efficacy with cannabis orally. So for pain, like I, in conclusion, basically more neuropathic chronic type pain, jury's still out on acute. And it's just incredibly difficult, I think, to design well-controlled studies, especially in the U.S. around this. I'm very hopeful that with some of the upcoming proposed regulation changes that it will loosen some of the barriers to actually using a consistent amount, strain, et cetera, in some of these federally funded 
chronic pain studies. It's really been difficult up to this point. And the ability to actually show what our patients are using that they're getting from the dispensaries, actually being able to use that in clinical trials has really been difficult up to this point. So I kind of want to piggyback off what Maria said. Um, So it sounds like the best place in therapy for cannabis would be the chronic sort of neuropathic pain where opioids aren't as effective. And as you said, the jury might still be out on cannabis in acute pain. So I guess my question is, are we utilizing cannabis as an opioid sparing agent? Yes. So for opioid sparing options, cannabis has actually been shown to possibly decrease opioid consumption. If we look at multiple surveys that have been conducted with cannabis, in people that are using opioids. There has been a lot of people that report that they are able to decrease their opioid consumption by using cannabis. There's been studies out there that have looked at cannabis use in comparison to opioids in combination or alone. For example, there was one study that was conducted where they looked at morphine and codeine and compared that to cannabis alone. the combination of the opioid and cannabis had an ED50 of morphine that that was four times less than morphine alone and cannabis. So the effective dose in 50% of the patients was four times less when we use cannabis and nine times less when we use cannabis with codeine. There was also another study conducted. It was very small, but it was a randomized trial of about 18 patients where they looked at cannabis in combination with a 2.5 milligram dose of oxycodone and a 5 milligram dose of oxycodone. And what those results showed in that study were the combination of cannabis and the oxycodone had a better effect on pain control than cannabis alone versus placebo. Now of note, there was a slight but significant increase in abuse in the combination trial. So keep that in mind. A lot of times when we're using cannabinoids in some of these studies, we do often may need higher doses, especially when we're using THC or CBD alone versus using a full profile cannabinoid product. So we're, with those higher doses come higher issues with side effects. So you may see more increase in side effects with these higher doses and more of an increased risk of cannabis use disorder with higher doses of cannabis in general. So I think that there may be some opioid sparing option. The fact that the CD2 receptor can facilitate beta endorphin release is also another piece that makes me think that with cannabis, we can actually decrease opioid use in many of our patients that are using opioids for chronic non-cancer. You know, the elephant in the room for me, though, I I think, Maria, is is that being in the outpatient side and seeing uh, a lot of patients who are on chronic opioid therapy for pain, they will frequently report using cannabis, oftentimes to help with uncontrolled pain uh, in addition to other symptoms or syndromes. But the big problem is, is I think the jury is still out on when I do urine drug screening and it tests positive for cannabis. What do I do with that? And that I think is that, I mean, we, we don't know. I don't know what the liability is around that. If you ask 10 different lawyers, you get 11 different answers. And, you know, we've really struggled with coming up with clinic policies in our health system that are, I think, compassionate and just 
especially in patients that have found a good combination while also keeping us out of regulatory harm's way. I agree, especially in your facility, Chris, because you work in a VA facility and, and legality is very much an issue with cannabis because it is still schedule one legally and every physician's office, every pain management's office may handle this differently. Some are like, if you tell me, I'll accept it, but I don't want to hear it. You know, so it, it becomes very difficult to try to regulate and utilize this with opioid therapy, especially when you have pain contracts and depending on what your contract says and what that physician wants that contract to say. So agreed, it is very difficult. Yeah, Chris, that's a really interesting point that I, I would have never thought about. So I think, Marie and Chris, you've done a really good job talking about the background of cannabis in pain management and kind of where in pain management it is used most optimally. So now I'm curious, once you've identified that cannabis may be a good management strategy for someone, what does the patient consult and the pain assessment typically consist of? So I've worked in a dispensary for a few years, so I can give some generalities about it. And maybe, you know, uh, we can see exactly what else we do in a consult. But for example, in Pennsylvania, we have to have a medical practitioner in the dispensary available for that consult. Some states do not have that and regulations are different in every state. But in my state, at least, there is a healthcare professional that is available to do a consult with the patient. What we're looking for is trying to figure out what their background is in cannabis, what they're willing to use, and what would be the best formulation for their disease state. And it's really interesting. So many patients come into that consult so anxious, especially if they've never used cannabis before, or even the ones that have, that have thought of it as illegal for so many years that they're a little bit um, intimidated by the uh, process of the consult and the process of getting cannabis in general. So I try to alleviate their fears. I try to build a rapport with them and work with them based on their needs and what their understanding is. I usually always try to ask them what their understanding is even before I get started. So what about the next step? After you've met the patient, you've kind of chatted about their background and the pain, how do you then select between different formulations of cannabis and how do you how do you dose cannabis? So when I do a consult, I usually have the patient come in, as I said, talk about their prior experiences, what are we treating, what are their goals? And it's fascinating how some people are unwilling to inhale cannabis, especially people that have never used cannabis before. So in general, cannabis naive patients more, want more oral products, topical products. Um, and it becomes a little bit challenging depending on what I'm treating, right? So say somebody has a migraine and they want their treatment at migraine quick. You know, they want their migraine to go away quickly, but it's difficult if they're unwilling to inhale. So looking at what I'm treating and what is the time frame In that situation, maybe I use a tincture and I try to use it under their tongue. Cannabis is like a filler. So it could be absorbed under the tongue. The problem is if you have five mLs on your dose of your tincture, it's gonna be near to impossible to hold that amount of liquid under your tongue. So when I'm working with someone as far as dosing and formulations, I'm looking at, am I treating persistent symptoms? Am I treating intermittent symptoms? Do I need something with a longer duration versus a shorter duration, right? And then, what exactly is the patient willing to work with? And I try to modify exactly what I'm doing with them based on what they're willing to use. 
And even people that have smoked before, if they've tried to use a vaporized product, it's interesting because usually if smoked cannabis, you'll inhale for five to six seconds. I have to do so much counseling on the oil products in the vaporizer pens, because if you inhale that for five to six seconds, you will be coughing till tomorrow. It is very irritating on the lungs. And the jury's still out on what long-term is going to be happen with these oils and vaporized products. I much prefer, again, I believe in the entourage effect, to utilize a vaporizer for flour. In Pennsylvania, it is illegal to smoke cannabis, but we sell flour. So we recommend using a vaporizer for flour. New concept to me, trust me, when I came in and worked in this dispensary, those are much different than life was like 40 years ago with cannabis. But the vaporizers for flour offer an advantage. When you combust cannabis, you will burn off the terpenes and you may lose some of those medicinal benefits from it. If you vaporize it, you do not burn off any of the constituents and you have better, better probability of utilizing that whole product for pain or whatever symptom you're treating and especially pain management. So that's kind of how I figure out what products there are what, and what they're willing to use. I also take inventory of what medications there are. I need to make sure that I'm looking at drug-drug interactions. There's many products that are out there. We think CBD is safe because you can buy it over the counter, but there is many drug interactions with CBD and THC as they're both metabolized by the SIP before 50 system. So we're looking in my consult for drug interactions and disease interactions. Someone with heart conditions may not be the best choice for using cannabis. So say they have pain, but they have a fib. Maybe cannabis isn't the right product for them because it can cause tachycardia. Someone with schizophrenia, it could make maybe have a psychotic break from cannabis. It can make that psychosis work. So looking at different disease states, looking at medications and looking at all those interactions and then counseling the patient. So important, we, especially if they're naive, we give them so much information on this consult. I would be, I would not remember. So I recommend I write as much down for them as possible. I write down what we've decided for doses, what we've decided for products, and give that to them for so that they have that available to them. We also counsel. This may not work day one, two, or three because we're starting low. We don't want to overwhelm and cause side effects where it's not going to be able to use cannabis from in the future. People will be unwilling because they just hallucinated because they used too much of it. So we counsel those patients, this is going to be a dose-finding mission. We need you to have a diary. Please write down how this worked for you. And then we always follow up with those patients in a day or two or three to make sure that they're able to do what I have recommended, that it's working for them, and then also titrating the, that medication if needed. Also talking to our patients about driving under the influence, right? Making sure that they're not using cannabis and then getting in a car and also some of the side effects that they may be seeing and how to manage those side effects. Again, low is better. Smaller amounts are better. Microdosing is better until we determine what exactly our dose would be. We always counsel. This is another thing with oral administration versus inhaled administration. As I've said, inhalation works much quicker. So people take it orally. A half hour, it's not working. 
I'll take another dose. Half hour, it's not working. I'm going to take another dose. And then when it kicks in in an hour and a half, we just stacked up three doses. I've had patients that they have done this and have gotten to have gotten very psychotic and had to go to the emergency room. Cannabis naive patients are talking about dosing. We always have to be careful too. I've also had patients where a dispensary has sold, sold them something called an RSO capsule, which is Rick Simpson oil, which is a very concentrated cannabis product of the whole product. They got a 20 milligram capsule and they're cannabis naive and they're 74 years old. They are psychotic, hallucinating in the emergency room. So we also have to look at the age of the patient, the tolerability, what can they do? What have they done before? And making sure that we're dosing correctly and dosing slowly and titrating to that correct dose for those patients. And I would add, you know, I'm not able to do direct counseling on cannabis use. I'm in a federally qualified healthcare center. But one thing I would also mention, aside from how important it is to be engaged or for people who are using cannabis to talk to their pharmacist about this because of the potential drug interactions. But if you're going, if you're going to be purchasing these products, especially over the counter pharmacies or what I would call a head shop, make sure that the products that you're purchasing have some type of certificate of analysis with them that shows exactly what is in there so that you know what kind of potential problems there may be in terms of the different cannabinoids, pesticides. Some of them now even will include terpene analysis as well. So be as educated as possible. And if you as a pharmacist are selling these products in your pharmacy, please make sure to also avail yourself of that information before recommending to patients. Maria, it's really been fun going over cannabis and pain with you. And, and given the day that we're recording this, I feel like it's really important that we acknowledge one of our own who has made unbelievable contributions to this area in terms of pain management and pharmacy. And that's Dr. Jeff Thuden, who unfortunately has just recently passed away and his funeral services were yesterday. So I'd like to just acknowledge his contributions to this particular field of study. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for all you've done for us in the past. He's been always available for me. Didn't know him that well, but to answer any question I had, he was the most pleasant person I've ever met and always had that beautiful bow tie on. And uh, it was his signature piece. And Chris, I loved you and your bow tie. Thank you both. Maria, it sounds like we can kind of sum it up with the phrase that I usually use for geriatric patients, but the start low, go slow kind of method. And Chris, you're right. Ensuring that the cannabis products are safe for, for consumption is obviously incredibly important. I think those are all of the questions that I had for you both today. And I, I really want to thank you for a great topic and a really interesting discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org podcast and using the CE code for our discussion today, which is 22048A, like Apple. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date that this podcast is published. Again, please use our code of 22048A, like Apple, to redeem the continuing education. Finally, if you haven't before, I really encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. 
You can find member exclusive offerings such as resources centers, including those of ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Provincialing Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.